0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 1. It's the reason we played a video about Mark, because that's what we're in today. All right? We're starting, we're starting a brand new book study in the Gospel of Mark. We're excited about it. We're grateful that you are here. We're grateful for everybody who's joining us online. And I um, just want to thank uh, the worship team for leading us this morning, and thank you for being here. And uh, if you're a guest this morning, by the way, we are especially excited that you're here. We know how hard it is to try something new. We know how nervous and uncomfortable you must be feeling at this very moment, right? But uh, we're excited you're here, and so we have a gift for you, uh, if you'd like, uh, to give us the ability to get a hold of you and encourage you and contact you. There are guest cards in the seat backs in front of you. There is a QR code you can scan and do it digitally on your phone, or you can just stop in at the welcome desk on your way out. And if you do that, if you stop there, then we have a gift for you to come in, and we want to just let you know how thrilled we are that you're here today. And before we jump into sermon, I'm just going to ask, uh, just do a, a request for prayer. We have a team uh, leaving on Wednesday uh, to go to Berlin, Germany. Uh, we have a church over there in Berlin that this uh, church has partnered with. They were some of our missions partners for almost 20 years now, and um, they have... A church retreat this coming weekend and uh, we have we have a team going over to put that on for them uh to bless them and encourage them and um and so uh zach stir will be going and uh doing all the worship for that uh seth Wymer will be going and doing all the adult bible studies for that uh, i'll be going and doing all the speaking of the main sessions and uh, we hope to be an encouragement to them and hope that maybe uh also uh, we can get involved with some of their uh, ministries to refugees they have there, to both Afghan and Ukrainian refugees that have come to the city. And so uh, we, hope, we hope to just be used by the Lord for anything, but if you could pray for our travels, pray for uh, the families that we're leaving behind, um, and uh, for us to be effective there, we, I can speak on behalf of Seth and Zach and myself and tell you we'd really appreciate that. And so uh, please do that. Speaking of prayer, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we uh, launch out on this this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for each and every person who's here today. We're grateful for a chance to, uh, to dig into your word, to, and, and it feels uh, fresh and new today to start a new book study, and we're thankful for that opportunity and Pray for your blessing on this entire thing. God, would you, uh, would you move mightily in our midst, Lord? would you speak through your word? Would you speak life and hope and salvation to those who need it? Would you speak conviction and encouragement uh, to those who already know you? And, uh, and may all of us leave this place, having been brought closer to you through your word. Um, We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I didn't grow up very mechanical or handy or really good at anything, honestly. And so I always found myself really insecure in brand new workplace environments, Because I knew that early on, I was going to be given a task, and they were going to realize that they hired a moron, right? And I wanted to to delay that as long as possible. I could get at least two days in before they discovered that it would be good. And so one such day was my very first day as a maintenance worker at Lieber State Recreation Area over there in Owen County. And I was hoping for an assignment my first day that would just kind of be easy, right? I got it. Don't need to ask fault questions. I can go do it. And I got it. Right? They told me to take a weed eater and go out and just trim the whole park. Whew, easy enough, right? We can handle this. So I grabbed the, the utility cart, threw the uh, weed eater in, started to take off, and immediately had a flat tire. Okay? And my boss said, well, just take it to the back in the barn back there and fill it up. Now, you didn't know this was my second job. My first job was at Clover Meadows Golf Course in Clover, Indiana. And I had a very exclusive uh, sort of um, highfalutin title of cart boy right that was my job and so it was, it was my job to clean uh, golf carts when they came up to to fill them back up to park them get them ready for the next group to go out and also in that I would change and air up lots of tires and so this was a process I was incredibly familiar with and yet I still felt that dread the second he said take it out to the barn and fill it up why because I was going to a barn that I hadn't been in before and I knew like, there's got to be some way I can screw this up. And so I went in, I took the car back there, went in, and I found a tank that looked just like the air tank we had at the golf course, and I grabbed the hose, relieved that I was going to be able to do this and, and get through the first day, and that's when I started hearing shouting from about 100 yards away. People screaming, stop, 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 and, I'm like, and I looked at them, and they're like, that's the torch. That's gas for a torch, Right? And just like that, all my fears and insecurities came rushing in like a flood. Like, well, now they know, right? They know they hired a moron. And, I, and it made, I made it through about seven minutes before they discovered that, okay? But you know what? There was also a truth that changed me. The rest of the time I was at that job, I never again went to that tank to fill a tire. Because right? that was a truth that I did not forget, and it shapes my behavior going forward. And I tell you that really embarrassing, dumb story to help you know why I'm really excited today. Because they were launching out on a brand new study in the, of the Gospel of Mark, and every single book of the Bible is unique. And all 66 books were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired the human authors, but each human author, as they would write these books, had a unique purpose, a unique perspective, and a unique goal for their account. And the Gospels, right, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that tell us of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, they're no different in that, that all, all of these perspectives of Jesus are needed because he cannot be contained in one account. In fact, I, lo- I love how John wraps up his Gospel. we will put it on the screens for you. He writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written so you need to know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are not the full account of Jesus. John tells us we couldn't, there wouldn't be enough books to contain the full account, but what we have is what God decided we needed to know. And yet each of these books have a unique angle. Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish believers. And he wants those readers to see how Jesus was the Messiah and fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies. It's why, when you read the book of Matthew, he'll tell you something that happened in Jesus' life. And then he immediately says, and thus fulfilled the prophecy, and he quotes the Old Testament. It's why Matthew 1 begins with an entire genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to King David, right? Luke is not writing to Jews. He was writing primarily to Greeks, and his, his goal was to give an historical account, and it includes a lot more details of like time and, and, and date and, and geographical markers, and one of Luke's main focuses was on the humanity of Jesus, Jesus being fully God and fully human. Luke focused more on his humanity, which is why early in the book of Luke, you find a, a, in detail a record of Jesus's birth. John wasn't so interested in the humanity of Jesus. He wrote to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and so his focus was on the divinity of Jesus. So how does John start? Not with Jesus' birth. John starts with an epilogue about the eternal divine word. The word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see how these introductions shape their purpose? And so how does Mark begin? With one sentence. That's it. And then he just gets right to it. And I point that to you because that's actually what sets Mark apart. His focus is not on Jesus' humanity. His focus is not totally on Jesus' divinity. His focus is not on Jesus' lineage. He's not concerned about Jews or Greeks. His focus is clearly on Jesus' actions. He, his gospel represents Jesus as a servant while being God. And, and Mark and James are two books of the Bible that are, that are similar in intention. And they often get a, an undeserved reputation that, that they're somehow light on teaching and emphasize action only. And I, I say that's undeserved, but, but I get why people would think that. For instance, uh, in, in Mark, Mark records 18 miracles of Jesus, but only four parables. We're going to read about 18 different miracles of Jesus and only one long discourse of him teaching. Nine times he's going to write in this gospel that Jesus taught the crowds and then doesn't write what he taught. Right? Now, we need to ask why Mark took this approach, why James took this approach to their letters. Right? They, they had a purpose in mind. They weren't simpletons. Mark was not opposed to teaching. He wrote an entire gospel for us. Early in the book of James, we see his statement of purpose. James chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James is telling his audience, if you keep hearing the word, you keep learning the word, you keep studying the word, and think by it, you're getting closer to God, but you're not living it out, what you're doing is you're deceiving yourself. So don't just be hearers of it, but actually be doers of it. Now, I guarantee that James and Mark could hold their own in a theological discussion. But when they wrote their books, they had a different purpose. James felt his readers had more knowledge than they were acting on. This was not acceptable to him, and it's not acceptable to Mark, Mark is the most pastoral of all the Gospels. He is writing to Christians in Rome, and his audience had already heard and believed the good news of Jesus, but though they'd placed their faith and trust in him, the truth of Jesus actually hadn't changed their practice that much. What they'd heard and believed actually hadn't changed their lives in any real, tangible way. Their actions, their behavior, the works that should come from faith were lacking and so he wants them to see the story of Jesus again and to understand that when you follow Jesus, you follow him with your hands and your feet just as much as you follow him with your head and your heart. And that's why I'm thrilled to go through this book with you all. And there's, there's two main reasons. Number one is that you need to know about this place. We are unashamedly and unapologetically a Jesus church. It's going to be really fun to be confronted with his words. It's going to be really fun to be confronted with his movement, his heart, and his actions week after week after week with you, to go straight to the source. The second reason I'm excited is this, is, and I feel comfortable saying this, that as a church, the vast majority of us are already educated beyond our level of obedience. I'll say it again. We are already educated beyond our level of obedience. We will teach this book in detail. We will always teach the Bible because we all need to know more. More than that, we need to do what we know. And the cold, hard reality is that the more of the Bible that we know, the more our sin is nothing more than just willful disobedience because we know better. Almost 2,000 years ago, there was a man with a heart for a group of people who sat down and wrote an account of Jesus's life and ministry. And he's writing to a group of people who knew more than what they were living. And he wanted them to be confronted with the reality of Jesus in a new way. And the Holy Spirit inspired every single word he wrote. And now we as a church get to hear those same words, to be confronted by that same Jesus. And it's my prayer that it's going to have the impact on me, it's going to have the impact on us as a congregation that Mark intended it to have on his original readers. That it will, it will be truths that actually change our practice. Right. So I'm going to invite Jeff McIntosh up. He's going to read uh, today's passage, the super lengthy introduction in the book of Mark, which is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, morning, Jeff. morning, church. Uh, verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Good job toughing through that, Jeff. I appreciate it. Now, I want to alleviate the fears that I can see happening already off the bat, all right? We're going to teach this book in detail, but it's not going to be a one-verse-a-week face. okay? This is just the intro. For fun, I looked into how long that take. There's 678 verses in Mark. Okay, and so if we did one verse a week, at that pace we'd be done in a little over 13 years. Tracking trends, chances are high I'll be dead by then, all right? And to quote Dwight truth, if I'm dead, you've all been dead for weeks, okay? So we're not going to go at that pace, right? We're going to go, we're going we're to take stories at a time, right? But I didn't want to skip over the verse because like I told you about, all the Gospels have a purpose in their introduction, Right? Verse two, Mark's going to jump right into the story of John the Baptist, and Adam will pick that up for you next week. But how biblical authors start their letters or start their books is often overlooked, but I don't want it to be. It might be one verse, but Mark lets us know a lot about what he's writing and about what is to come just from this one verse. And the first thing I want to see is that the book of Mark is good news. It's good news. There's, there's, a, there's a word that you're going to hear a lot around here if you stay with us. And you sh- my hope and prayer is that you would hear it a lot in any church. And in the word is good, the word gospel. All right? And the word gospel literally just means the good news. And so whenever you hear somebody say the gospel of Jesus Christ, what they're talking about is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's an important phrase from Mark. He uses it nine times throughout this book, and the first time is right here in the introduction in chapter 1, verse 1. And he let us know outright that, this, that the proclamation of the gospel is one of his main purposes in writing this book. And I love what Dr. Paul Reese says about the gospel. He says, the gospel is neither a discussion nor debate, it is an announcement. Right? Mark is making a proclamation with this book, and the proclamation is that of good news. To know the story of Jesus Christ is to know the greatest news the world could ever hear. To hear the gospel is to hear hope and truth and salvation that is found absolutely nowhere else. So there is no greater aim for a Christian life or a Christian ministry than to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And if you stay with us during the study, I cannot promise you that you won't be challenged. I won't tell you that you won't be uncomfortable. I won't tell you that you won't be convicted. I won't promise you that everything in Mark will be easy. In fact, I can promise the opposite. But it absolutely will be good news. It'll be good news for you. It'll be good news for your soul and your heart and your family and your life. The gospel of Jesus is good news. It's a balm for our souls. It's because the good news revolves entirely around Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 again. He says, the beginning of the gospel, not just the gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' good news is better than any other good news precisely because he's better than anything else. That is why we say that we are unapologetically and unashamedly a Jesus church, because when you come to this place, what we don't want to offer you is this place. What we don't want to offer you is ourselves. What we don't want to offer you is any kind of self-help or self-discovery. What we want to offer you is Jesus Christ because he changes everything. And we're going to spend some time figuring that out how this morning because to understand the good news, you have to be able to understand the bad. And so we're going to sink into some really bad news for a while this morning. I don't do this because I enjoy it. I like to be optimistic by nature, but we have to understand the bad to understand how good the good is. And the bad news starts by just realizing that you and I and everyone else, and everyone you ever meet, we all have the exact same problem. It's the biggest problem that any of us will ever face, and the problem is that we are sinners. Romans chapter 3 says this, that as is written, there is no one righteous. Do you hear the language? Nobody's righteous. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we're all in this together, that we're sinners. And there's a distinction in this that, that might seem minor to you in a second when I make it, but I promise you it's a big deal. And here's the distinction. I am not a sinner this morning because I have sinned. My sin did not earn me the title of sinner. The distinction is this. I sin because I am a sinner. That is my nature. That is my core. At my core, I am not righteous. At my core, I'm not holy. My heart, my mind, my will, my body, they've all been affected with the curse of sin. Jeremiah 17 says this about the human heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Now, in case you're not grasping those two verses, everything in there is bad news for us. All of it. Right? We're told there that the human heart is deceitful, that it's incurable, that we cannot fix it. That even, even when I think I'm trying to do good things, even when I am doing good things, what comes behind that? there's sinful motivation behind that. And it might be buried so deep that even I don't recognize it, but that's because my own heart is deceiving me. The Verse 10 tells us what? That God knows. He's not deceived by my heart. He sees through to my pure intentions, right, or less than pure intentions. He's fully aware of all my sinfulness. He's fully aware of all my pride. He's fully aware of all my selfishness and rebellion. He knows it all. Which is why Isaiah 64 says that all of us, again, hear the language, all of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. I like the translation that says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. This is why my heart is incurable. That even if I attempt to, even if I try to live a good life, and boy, don't humans want to believe that? We all want to believe that we can, be, we can do that, right? That we can be good, that we can make some deal with God where my good is going to outweigh my bad, that the scales will be in my favor, and I'll be able to, to get into heaven through that. The problem is, if I'm a sinner at my core, then the good I do doesn't even count. It doesn't solve the problem. And I, and I need you to know, I'm still not even to the bad news. We are sinners at our core, and our sinfulness is on a crash course with God's holiness. Those two things will collide. And god's holiness is real. Exodus 15, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders. Leviticus 11, Brian, the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. You see, back in Romans 3 when it said that, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, God's glory is his holiness. That What that word in holiness means, it means that he's perfect in every single way. All his thoughts are perfect. All his intentions are perfect. All his actions are perfect and perfectly pure. There is no sin in God and there's no bent towards sin in him. He's high above, and no one can compare to him. And that, by the way, is the standard that we sinners are to reach if we're going to save ourselves by our own efforts and our own life and our own good works. That we are to be perfect in every single way. And I'm still not to the bad news. Problem is that God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. Since He is holy, that means He is perfect and just, and sin is not perfect. It's the opposite of what is right and what is just. And so, because God is holy, sin must be paid for. It must be atoned for. It must be brought to account. And here's what's happening when I live my life every day as a sinner Romans chapter 2. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. You ever heard somebody say, only God can judge me? And they almost always say it flippantly. The problem with that is this. God will judge you, and that's absolutely terrifying. Because God is just... And he is holy, and he is perfect, and he made a wondrous, beautiful creation. And every moment that holy God is watching rebellious, sinful human beings live in rejection of his rule, live in rebellion against his standards, with little to no gratitude towards him or affection or recognition of him, and with our sin, we are systematically taking every part of his great creation and bringing it to ruin, and then say, only God can judge me. Man, if we remain in our sin. He should be the very last person that we ever want to face. Because every day we are storing up for ourselves his wrath. And when his judgment is revealed, we're going to feel the full weight of it. If we die not having our sins atoned for, we will experience that wrath deserved and earned for all eternity in hell. And that's the bad news. So why does Mark start his book by proclaiming good news? Why does he say this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us why. He, being God, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You understand what that verse is saying? It's saying that God took the one who did not know sin, the one who was holy, that one is Jesus. Jesus. And, and God made Jesus to become sin for us, right? He, he sent Jesus to a cross to die in our place, right, to, to suffer what we deserve, to absorb the cost for our sins. And on that cross, that wrath of God for sin that we've been storing up every single day with our sin, right, that same wrath that we store up was poured out fully on Jesus Christ as he was brutally beaten and whipped and tortured and killed, not for anything that he had done, but because of our sins, now, that's not amazing enough. Don't forget the second part of the verse. Since my sin was put on Jesus on the cross, when I believe in Him, guess what I get back? I get His righteousness. I get His holiness. That that standard that I could never reach as a sinner. That thing that I could never be. The very thing that's required for me to know God for all eternity. It is mine in Jesus. It's mine by Jesus. It's mine through Jesus. Because he paid, right, he paid for my sins with his own body and blood, and then he gives me his holiness, which I could never achieve. Now, now, that is good news. And this exchange occurs when I recognize what God's word says about me is true, that I am indeed a sinner, that I have fallen short, that there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no deal to be made with God, that what I deserve as I stand before you this morning is death and hell forever. Thank God he made a way for me. Thank God for the good news of Jesus, that he came and he took my place in the cross, he paid my price, and he rose again, that if I simply repent, if I turn from my sin and believing in myself and put my faith and trust in Jesus alone to forgive me, he will save me, he will forgive me of all my sins, he will give me his righteousness, and he will grant me eternal life in heaven. Because the reality is this. There's going to be a lot of people in hell who thought they deserved heaven. And every single person in heaven will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they deserved hell. And they called out to Jesus to save them. The good news revolves entirely around Jesus. And what makes Jesus good is his exclusivity. Look at Mark's introduction again the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who? The Son of God. Mark's not wanting there to be any confusion at all over who Jesus is. The very opening verse declares Jesus' divinity, and the rest of the book of Mark was going to repeat it. Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being God in human flesh, is confirmed repeatedly throughout this book. It is confirmed by God the Father. It's affirmed by demons. It's affirmed by Jesus himself. It's confirmed by Roman centurion at Jesus' death. It's also confirmed by his authoritative teaching and the sovereign power of disease and demons and nature and death. Again and again and again, Jesus' divine nature drives this book. And what I want you to realize this morning is this, that that divine nature is incredibly important because without it, we have no hope. There is no good news if Jesus Christ is not God. Now, you might hear today, which I hear a lot, that Jesus was a good person. He's a good teacher, great example, right? Somebody we should all look up to. Logically, you must reject those identities of Jesus. And here's why because he claimed to be God. His followers, his close disciples, all claimed that he was God. He said himself that he was eternal. He said that there's only one way the Father, and it's him. He said that he was the judge of the universe. He said that all authority in heaven and earth was given to him. Now, if he was lying about those things, then he's not a good teacher. He's lying about those things. He's not a good example. He's not a good person. If he simply believed them to be true and they weren't, then he's a crazy person and a lunatic. Or he was exactly who he said he was. And his life and his teachings are authoritative and life-giving. His death can count for our sins because he had none of his own. His resurrection is real because his death was different than every other death. And his gospel is good news because he's the only one who's capable of saving us. Please, please, please do not even begin to give yourself over to this modern push to emasculate or weaken or lessen Jesus' true identity. Don't be put off by his exclusivity. Embrace it. Because that, the, the exclusivity of Jesus is the very parts of Jesus that can save us. Without his exclusive nature, without his divinity, we have no hope. Everything that makes Jesus distinct and different and set apart is everything about him that makes our salvation and eternal life possible. So here in Mark, we, we get to start at the beginning and then watch the story unfold. And as we do, it's, it's our prayer that we would be confronted by the reality of Jesus. That we'd be convicted by how he moves, convicted by, by, by what he thinks, by where he goes, by what he does and the words that come from his lips. That through this, we would know him more and more, and in doing so, we'd love him more and more, and in doing so, we'd serve him more and more. And today, at the outset of our study, and in light of Mark's powerful but brief introduction, there are just a couple questions that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And the first is this. Have you truly embraced the gospel? Now, I want you to take note of what I'm not asking there. I'm not asking, have you gone to church? I'm not asking if you pray. I'm not asking if you believe in a God. I'm not asking if you've read the Bible. I'm not asking if you grew up in church. I'm not asking if God's sort of always been a part of your life. I'm not asking if you try to treat people good. I'm not asking any of those questions because I don't care. The question is, have you truly embraced the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you ever confronted the reality of your own sin? that You are a sinner at your core, and because of that, you've lived in rejection of and rebellion towards a holy, awesome, terrifying God. And that God, who is perfect and just in everything he does, so we don't get to negotiate with him, says that because of your sin, you deserve death and you deserve hell and there's nothing that you can do to change that in your own power. Have you confronted that? And in that desperate state, God sent Jesus Christ to be everything that we cannot be, to be the perfect holy sacrifice on our behalf, to take our place on the cross, to pay our price, right? And if you come to Jesus and offer Nothing, don't come relying on your good works, don't come relying on your church attendance, don't come relying on, on, on good things you've done, but you come in the desperate state that you're actually in with the posture of, God, I know what I deserve is death and hell, and I'm trusting you to save me by the death and resurrection of Jesus, then he will save you. That is truly embracing the gospel. Will you offer nothing to God but your sin, believing in him and trusting in him alone to save you? I don't care if this is your first time in a church or you've been a member here for 60 years. If you've never fully embraced the gospel, if you've never confronted the reality of your own sin and the debt you owe God, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus alone to save you, then you are under the wrath of God right now. You're storing it up and it is waiting on you. And I cannot overstate how desperately you need Jesus Christ this morning. You have no greater need in your life than to call out to Jesus to save you. So do so today before it's too late. There's not a one of us guaranteed tomorrow. Call out to him to save you today. The second question I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. How is it that you're living out your faith? Remember, this was Mark's purpose for writing this book. He just couldn't fathom someone having an encounter with the good news of Jesus and having their eternity changed, but not having their life changed that much. The vast majority of us are already educated past our level of obedience. For example, right, as a church, for the last seven Sundays, if you're here, we just, we just did a seven-week dive into the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, or these marching orders from Jesus in which he claims all authority, and he tells us what to live for. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, and, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We said that out loud together for seven weeks. We broke down each part in seven different sermons. We walked you through it. How many of you can honestly say that your life is different in response to the truth that you heard? Did it change anything about you? Did it change any way that you go through your day? Did it change any way that you pray? Did it change any of the priorities that you have set and kept? Did Did it change any of the money that you spend? Listen, the good news of Jesus is really, really good news. How is it impacting your life? How are you actually different because of it? It's great if you know the true gospel. We need to know that. It's great if you're a student of God's Word. You need to know it. It's great if you can teach it. It's great if you can talk about it. But then if you're there you need to know this as well. You should know that same Bible doesn't ever say that God the Father will tell us at the end of time, well said, well thought, well posted, well taught, my good and faithful servant. Now what's he say? He says to those who he deems worthy, well done, my good and faithful servant. Has the gospel impacted the words that you say? Has it changed the way you fill your calendar? Has it affected what you watch and what you read and what you intake? Are you discipled more by the living word of God than you are by YouTube or Facebook or cable news? Has it affected where and how you spend or give? Does it alter how you see your role as parent or child or student or neighbor or coach or boss or employee or more? Really, this is the question. If you stop believing in Jesus tomorrow, how would your life look any different than it does today? If you stop believing in Jesus tomorrow, how would your life look any different than it does today? And if you're having a hard time coming up with answers to that question, then that's a problem. So confess that to the Lord. Invite his full inspection of your life. Let let. Mark, go to work on you in the coming weeks and months and ask God to help you start living out your faith in Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is really, really good news. It should impact us. It should impact our eternities. And it should impact our entire lives. Have you ever fully embraced the good news and believed? Have you allowed it to shape or change your life in meaningful ways? Today's a great day to start. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your servant, Mark, who who was confronted by the reality of Jesus himself, who saw these things firsthand, some of them, who, who couldn't fathom embracing the truth of the gospel and then living your life in the same old way. And so as somebody who cared about you and somebody who cared about his readers, he sat down and he penned a book to tell us the story of Jesus once more. So God, at the outset of that study, I pray that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who've never fully surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've never truly embraced the life and hope and salvation that's found only in Jesus, they've never confronted the reality of their own sin and the debt they owe you, that today would be their day of salvation they day they would call out to you from their seat right now, Lord, I, I am a sinner. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. So I'm trusting fully in Jesus to do it. And God, for the rest of us who, who have done that, who know that grace, who know that salvation, Lord, would you help us to live our lives in response to that truth? That would be a truth that changes our behavior. That would be a truth that changes our priorities. That would be a truth that changes our actions, our intentions, our thoughts. Lord, would, would we be a life that if we stopped believing in you tomorrow, it would look drastically different? Because that's what the gospel demands of us, and that's what it deserves. Lord, we pray that you do this in Jesus' powerful name and for his sake. Amen. Before we're led in our closing psalm, we're going to give you a couple minutes just to spend some time in prayer. This is just a time for you and the Lord to wrestle with some things that he might be put on your heart. Uh, We got both of those questions I wanted you to wrestle with today on the screen. They can guide your prayers, but mainly uh, this is just your time with him. Do not, do not waste it.